thing is, is to be self-aware enough to notice when changes are happening. And most of us are so distracted by external reality that we don't pay attention to what's happening internally. Most of us are looking for the answers outside of ourselves. And we do live in a world where everybody tells you, buy this book, buy my new book, it's gonna change your life. Buy this book, yes, this is the book that's gonna change your life. Read this, consume this, do this. And anybody that says that to you, I'm sorry to say this, and I apologize for any other authors or experts or gurus that you have on your podcast, the sad reality is these people are lying. And I'll tell you why they're lying. It's not that they're not offering good advice and they're not doing it with honesty and integrity, but anybody that says that they have the answer is not being authentic. The only person that has the answer is you. This is episode number 12 of Hustle with Harmeet and you'll be listening to my conversation with Neil Shah. Founder of International Wellbeing Insights and Chief De-Stressing Officer at the Stress Management Society. Welcome everyone to Hustle with Harmeet. My name is Harmeet Singh and I'm your host for this show. Every week I interview interesting personalities from across the globe. The insights and hacks shared by our guests will help you achieve a winner's mindset as well as inspire you to live a life full of passion and purpose. My special guest on the show today is Neil Shah. He is an international speaker, management consultant, executive coach, master trainer and world's top 30 NLP professional. Neil is a leading international expert on stress management and well-being. He is the author of Amazon number one bestseller, Turning Negatives into Positives, An Introduction to Neuro-Linguistic Programming, and The 10-Step Stress Solution. He is a renowned media personality on the subject of well-being, appearing regularly on BBC Breakfast, BBC Five Live, and Sky Sunrise. In today's episode, Neil has shared his insights on his journey from Entrepreneur of the Year to the chief de-stressing officer. Is stress a primary factor which drives people to extreme measures? How can we take a stock check of our mental health? During the last 20 years in the corporate world, how the stress levels have changed? How do corporate leaders and CEOs handle stress? Should corporate executives be trained like Navy SEALs to help them better handle the stress in their lives. Neil's biggest learnings from taking part in the Iron Man Triathlon. Tips for some instant lifestyle changes to counter stress in our lives. Before we begin, make sure to subscribe to this podcast and you may also connect with us on our Instagram page at the rate hustle with Hermit for all the latest updates on our upcoming episodes. So let's jump into our episode number 12. Hi everyone, I'm super excited to have Mr. Neil Shah today on the show with us, who's joining us all the way from London. Welcome to the show, Neil. It's great to have you here. Hami, thank you so much for having me. It's such a pleasure. It's been so good getting to know you already and I'm so excited about our conversation today. 
Stress is a short and simple word. Yet, if not given its due attention, it can wreck our lives. At some point in our lives, we have either experienced stress or had someone, a friend, a loved one, a colleague going through stress. There could also be a scenario that the person sitting next to you is going through tremendous stress in his or her life, yet we remain unaware of their situation. But don't worry, today you have tuned in to the right spot because we have Neil Shah with us today, the founder of Stress Management Society. Someone who has spent many years of his life researching this topic and in the process has helped thousands of people live their best lives. So Neil, before we jump into the work which you are currently doing, why don't you take us back from where this journey started? I believe there was a point in your life when you won the Entrepreneur of the Year Award. You want to talk about that phase of your life, how your journey commenced? Yeah, thanks, Hami. Um, yes, to go back, I think the backstory is really a way to understand why I do the work that I do today. What I do right now is not my job. It's not my career. It's not my business. This is my passion, my passion in life. This is my very reason for being. The Japanese have a concept, a philosophy that they call ikigai. Ikigai quite literally means the reason for being, where your purpose, your passion, your profession all come together. And the way that you express yourself is, is answering your very reason for existing. And I found mine, actually... I correct myself. I didn't find it. It found me. I did not choose this path in life. This path in life chose me. My journey started long before I was doing the work that I'm doing now. So I started my first business when I was 24 um, in 1998. It was a, a, an IT recruitment organization. I built it from the ground up from nothing, turned it into a multi-million pound business with offices in different countries, won awards. And I don't know if you've watched the movie Wolf of Wall Street, but when I watched that movie a few years ago, I watched this movie thinking, oh my God, that's my life story. Pretty much every facet of that movie came true for me. The lifestyle, the, the substances, the pace of life, the, the money, all of it. And just like with Jordan Belfort, if you're not living the life that takes you to your ultimate destiny, the universe has a way of giving you a course correction. And it was only five years after I started that business that I didn't just get a small course correction. I got a baseball bat around the head. And from, from a place of having everything and being on top of the mountain, I had everything take away and was left with nothing and being literally in a deep, dark valley in my life. Money gone, business gone, cars repossessed. Most of the people I considered to be my closest friends turned their back on me. The person I was in the relationship was cheating on me. Like every aspect of my life disintegrated. And I felt like there was nothing left to define me. I went as far as thinking there's no reason left to be here anymore. I had a breakdown, um, you, you know, was in, in, in a, a very poor state of mental and emotional health. Um, and in the depths of that experience, I made the decision I didn't want to be here anymore. And I sought out the ultimate permanent solution to a temporary problem. I attempted to end my own life. Um, and thankfully for me, I was found and rushed to hospital and I survived that experience. But when you have got to the point you don't want to be here anymore, yet you failed in that act also, there's nowhere else left to go. 
So the only thing I could consider was I got to the bottom. I don't want to be here anymore. I tried to check out. That didn't work. What else can I do? And the only other thought that came to me was I need to get back on top of the world again. And it was only a few months before that. That's where I was. I was the master of my own destiny, the captain of my own ship. And Hamid, it's a, a long story for another day. Maybe we could do another discussion on this story <laughs> itself. But in 2003, I decided to, tra to travel out to the Himalayas because the highest place I could think of was Mount Everest uh, or what's locally known as Sagarmata. The, 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 the local people call her Sagarmata, which I think is a much more fitting name for her, which I believe directly translates to Mother of the Earth, right. which is such a powerful name rather than George Everest who discovered her 100 years ago. She was there for millions or billions of years. It wasn't discovered 100 years ago. That's just nonsense. But I, I say that for a reason, because going out there, there was a, a, a famous English author called William Blake that had a, a, a saying, which is, when men and mountains meet, strange things happen that don't happen when you're jostling in the street. Being out there in the mountains, every day struggling to get to camp in the evening and, and basically doing my best to stay alive in an environment where your mortality is is uh, brought into question every day and you've got constant reminders of people that haven't made it with monuments to people that have died, attempted to climb or attempted to get back from the mountain. It really puts things into perspective. Life is simple. Your problems at home, money, cars, relationships, friends, all of that is irrelevant. You've got to focus on staying alive. So life becomes very simple. And I didn't appreciate it at the time, but that was my first powerful experience of mindfulness. Mindfulness is... Being present in the moment with no judgment. I'm in the mountains attempting to, to climb and get to camp in the evening. And literally, I'm just being focused and being present in this moment. And from that place, I basically ended up having what I now describe as a very powerful spiritual epiphany. I grew up in a household where the only religion in my house growing up was football. Um, and, you, you know, we had culture, but don't get me wrong, but I didn't know that Christmas and Diwali were different religions because we celebrated them with the same passion. You know, it was, right. I think if my parents had understood about Eid, we'd celebrate that as well. It's just, you, you know, it was another excuse to celebrate, to come together with the family, to eat food. So, you, you know, I was given the benefit of a very broad and liberal upbringing where we had culture, but not so much religion, if that makes sense. So as I grew up, my understanding was that spirituality and religion are the same thing. And I didn't really have much time for religion, which meant I shunned spirituality as well, because I didn't feel that that, that worked for me. It wasn't part of my life journey. Now I'm in the mountains, and I had an experience. And Hami, this was probably one of the most seminal moments of my life, where I'm literally on my hands and knees, crying, sobbing like a baby, having a conversation with the spirit of the mountain in the same way I'm having a conversation with you. And in that moment, it was so real for me that I'm sitting here having a conversation with Sagarmata, who's a mountain, right? So now my rational mind is telling me, low oxygen environment, you were probably exhausted, you maybe were hallucinating. Or maybe I was having a conversation with the spirit of the mountain, who knows? Who knows? It doesn't matter. Because what happened was powerful either way. Even if it was only my imagination, it was enough to change the course of my life. Because that conversation was very much along the lines of, Neil, everything that you just experienced, that pain, that trauma, the tragedy, all the things that you're sad and upset and distraught about, it is the most powerful gift that you'll ever be given in your life. What are you going to do about it? And that's basically what this voice is telling me. 
And that's the point that I, I understood. I realized I hadn't had a breakdown. I'd had a breakthrough. I'd broken through the beliefs about myself, this superficial, shallow existence, which was very much about money and status, to something more powerful, to connect with my true power. And in that moment, I knew instantly, clearly, that my purpose of being here was to help other people that went through the same kind of thing. That was in 2003. I did not anticipate for a second how much worse things would get and how bad the issues around mental health will get to the point where now in 2020, and every day we talk about COVID and the amount of people yeah. that died. What people don't talk about is how many hundreds of times more people have died as a result of suicide. How suicide is the main cause of death in a man under the age of 45 in Western Europe. Uh, or in Western society, should I say, is the second main cause of death to a 15 to 29-year-old on planet Earth. Now, do you see people taking concise, consistent action across the world? Do you see governments, you know, putting things into, like, immediate emergency protocols to stop, to stem this loss of life? No. Even though it's costing us more lives than COVID. So, for me, that, that that's the one thing that's really challenging. So, you know, today, every day of my life, I am so fortunate and blessed that I get to get out of bed, travel around the world, engage people to really make a difference, to empower them and to show them better choices for themselves and for each other and how we can protect ourselves and each other from this growing challenge, this pandemic of mental health that we're experiencing on the planet today. Neil, you have rightly pointed that even though number of deaths through suicide far exceed than that through covid Yet, governments and institutions haven't laid emphasis on curbing this. Namely, at the same time, I believe that stress is the primary factor which drives people to take extreme steps. So, let me explain the pathway because um, it will be, let, let's use another analogy. Let's look, use physical health. If you have poor physical health, you don't exercise, you don't eat well, you don't have your fruits and vegetables, you don't get good night's sleep, you don't have social interactions, your health will be poor. Would you agree with that, right? Absolutely. Now, poor health can't necessarily kill you directly, but do you agree poor health can lead to illness and those illnesses can kill you, right? Yeah, yeah. We understand that from physical health. Mental health is exactly the same. If you're stressed and you're anxious, do we agree that could affect your mental health? Yeah. It will act as a catalyst, yeah. Of, of course. So your mental health can become poor. When you have poor mental health, that can then lead to either mental illness or physical illness. Those mental illness could be diagnosed conditions like bipolar, depression, schizophrenia, etc. But also that could then lead to suicidality. Does that make sense? So stress anxiety then cause poor mental health, which could cause um, mental illness. But here's the interesting thing. The stress anxiety, etc., can also then have an impact on your physical health and your mental health and uh, physical health are connected. So if your mental health is compromised, that can impact your physical health, which can then in turn lead to serious health conditions like heart disease, cancer, diabetes, stroke, directly and indirectly. Directly because being stressed, being anxious, etc. affects the way your body functions, but being stressed, being anxious affects the way you live your life and you're less likely to do the health-promoting, health-giving activities. So it's a double whammy. So this is why it's really important that we don't just think about, oh, have I had my vitamins? Have I had my daily walk? Am I getting yeah. good night's sleep? But what am I doing to also protect my mental and emotional state as well? But how the 
but how does in that scenario neil an individual take stock of his mental health okay let's take a scenario a person wants to take stock of his mental health is there any specific set of questions he can ask himself to take stock of his mental health now there is no generic response to that there is no uh, answer these questions and you know if you're doing well or you're not doing well yeah i'm sure there are uh, but for me there's a better way most of us don't know ourselves we don't really know our normal baseline operating behavior so we won't notice when there's changes until those changes are very severe you know what will happen if you're thirsty right if you haven't drunk water for some time the first thing that will happen you'll get this very small whisper hummy 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 i'm thirsty drink some water Yeah. But you're busy. You're so busy working on that report or, you, you know, writing up the, 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 the notes or editing that podcast or whatever. You don't hear it when it's a whisper. Then it gets louder. Hami, Hami, I need some water. This is your body talking to you. I need some water. Hami, get me some water. Now you're still so engaged and engrossed in your activities. You don't listen to it. But then finally, Hami, get the bloody water. Now, What's happening from a mental health perspective? I'm sorry to scare you, but hopefully it highlights the point. The majority of us, we don't pay attention until you've got a screaming voice. Or until that transforms into a health issue or something which is more visible to us, right? So it's important to listen to our inner voice rather than suppressing it. And unless you're in tune with your mind and your body, unless you're able to pay attention to those subtle cues and know what kind of feedback you'll get it could be a voice it could be a feeling it could be a sensation it could be changes in behavior it could be a number of different things but the key thing is is to be self aware enough to notice when changes are happening and most of us are so distracted by external reality that we don't pay attention to what's happening internally most of us are looking for the answers outside of ourselves and we do live in a world where everybody tells you buy this book buy my new book it's going to change your life buy this book yes this is the book that's going to change your life read this consume this do this and anybody that says that to you i'm sorry to say this and i apologize for any other authors or experts or gurus that you have on your podcast the sad reality is these people are lying and i tell you why they're lying It's not that they're not offering good advice and they're not doing it with honesty and integrity, but anybody that says that they have the answer is not being authentic. The only person that has the answer is you. Someone can help you to find the answer, but we need to go inside. And this is where, you know, we live in a world that has power structures, politics, religion, etc. come to my building on this day read this book re- live your life according to these principles then you'll be okay then everything's going to be fine not true i'm sorry I, i don't mean to offend anyone you have to go inside and inside you'll have your inner compass you will have your integrity your morality your truth underneath layers and layers of story by reconnecting with that we can start to live more authentically and for me rather than having a, pe- a a population that follows laws and observes religion i would much prefer a population that lives authentically because when people are in authenticity we're able to connect with love and compassion and empathy and all of these traits are not necessarily synonymous with the ways that we live our lives today 
So that for me is a really important quest that we must engage in as part of our personal growth and evolution. That's extremely powerful, Neil. Uh, I want to take you back, Neil, to something which you had highlighted. When you started your corporate journey, you went through a lot of challenges. So from your perspective, you know, 20 years back when people in the corporate world to now in 2020, when you look at the people in the corporate world, how the stress levels have changed and also how leaders, CEOs in the corporate world, in the corporate world deal with stress? So there's a couple of questions in there. Let me take them one by one. Has it changed? Yes, it has. Massively. Why? What's changed about the ways that we live, work, and communicate in the last 20 years, Army? How do you think we would have communicated with each other 20 years ago? Maybe a, a normal phone call? Yeah, yeah. If, if Maybe a text, because we had text messages then. Yeah. Would you have sent an email? No, majority of people didn't really use email as a primary mode of communication. Did we have WhatsApp? No. Did we have Facebook? No. Did we have Twitter? No. So yeah, you know, the, the 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 social media of the time was MySpace, and it was terrible. And you, you, you know, like it, it never really took off. Um, so the point is, life was simple. You, you, you know, I remember when I started, we would communicate by sending faxes to clients. There, you know, emails wasn't even something that was. It was starting to take off. So. You know, this always-on culture we have now, my working day started when? When I arrived at the office. When did my working day finish? When I left, right? Now, most people's working day starts when? When they open their eyes. What's the first thing you do? You open your eyes, you look at your phone. Within five minutes, the vast majority of people have, have turned on their phone and they're checking their messages, right? We have... An overload of information. We literally have a tsunami of information that's hitting our social media, mainstream media, instant messaging, emails, etc., etc. And the human brain doesn't have the capacity to keep pace with all of this information. So we get overloaded. And also we're very distracted. We don't focus. Like, you know, in the past, life would have been more simple. You started working on one thing. You finish that report. Then you do the next thing. Now I'm working on this report. Email pings in. My phone is going. You know, the, the instant message going here. And it's just like, oh, I'm literally all over the place. I'm not, not allowed to focus on one thing because there's so many things right. pulling on my attention. And, you know, I would go as far as saying the problem isn't necessarily even stress management. It's attention management. It's being able to manage our attention for long enough to be able to finish something. Because how often do you have 20 different things that you're doing at the same time? And multitasking is, is, is a fundamentally flawed approach because nothing is getting your full attention. So that's where things have become more complicated. And the challenges and stresses are we have more pressure and demand. But actually, on the whole, we're not getting as much done. So we are working harder, attempting to do more, more distracted. But overall, you, you know, on a day-to-day -day basis, are we producing as much as we would if life was simple and you got to focus task by task? So I think that's where the challenge comes in. But also the expectations we have of ourselves and each other has increased significantly. And, you know, you may have had 
20, 30, 40, 50 years where the expectation was such. And then you've got this quantum jump. Because technology has improved, we as humans are expected to keep pace with that technology, which is not possible. Your brain cannot process information or as much information as a computer or AI could. So we're now getting to the point where as humans, we're starting to feel like we're inadequate or superfluous. So that in itself is increasing the pressure. So Neil, are leaders better equipped to handle stress? Or maybe how do leaders think about stress? Your take on that? Truthfully, a lot of leaders don't until it's too late, until they've had a heart attack or until they've had a breakdown or a burnout. And we have so many really, really um, significant examples of leaders that have burnt out, that have had breakdowns in the public domain. There was the head of BMW. There was Anthony Horto Osario from Lloyd's TSB Bank. There's been many. And I think we need to get better at recognizing that there are lots of people out there in leadership positions that haven't really been well-equipped or trained or, or shown how to manage their stress. The assumption is the more responsibility I have, the more pressure and demand and stress I'm naturally going to experience. That shouldn't necessarily be the case because then also you become a bad role model that you're showing people, oh, you want, you want to have responsibility, you want, you, want to have, uh, uh, you want to be a leader, then you've got to get better at dealing with stress. You, know, just, you just need to look at Barack Obama. You know, If you look at pictures of him before he came into office and pictures of him afterwards, he'd aged eight years chronologically. Yeah. Biologically, he looked like he'd aged 20 years. He looked like a much, much older person at the end of his office because the stress has obviously had a, such a significant impact. So I think part of what we should be doing is training and developing and teaching leaders how to be better role models. It was Mahatma Gandhi that said, be the change you want to see in the world. I say to every leader, be the change you want to see in your organization. Be a good role model. Show people that it's okay to look after yourself because that's where you then give people permission to do the same. And I think this is where we, we do need a, a new breed, a new style of leadership. And when I say that, I'm going to offer you an example. It's what I would describe as more feminine leadership styles. This is not male or female. You, know, you, you can be operating or displaying feminine qualities even if you're not um, a, a, a woman. Now, a lot of men are listening to this and it's like, what, I'm not going to work dressed in a skirt? No, that's not what I mean. I'm talking about being able to engage emotionally, about being able to be present, You know, not necessarily always trying to fix the problem, but just holding space for people to express themselves. This, for me, are the feminine qualities that are really needed in the modern workplace, you, 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 where you, even as a, as a man or a male leader, we can still engage in those kind of activities rather than, you know, work harder, work longer, get more done. That's more the kind of the masculine structure. So how can we kind of embody these kind of traits? And we're starting to see that, particularly during this pandemic experience. If we look at the countries that have had significant success in handling this pandemic, most of them have been countries with female leaders that particularly like uh, Jacinda Herhan from uh, New Zealand, I think yeah. Finland, Estonia. There are many countries around the world that have had very kind of strong feminine female leaders that have really shown their population that they care and have been making decisions from that place of caring and nurture. And I think that's really what we need more of in this world, not more driving people harder to get more done. So Neil, let's be realistic. We live in a world where in the corporate culture, it's the profit margins that matter at the end of the day. We live in a society where multitasking is needed. 
I have to be on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn at the same time, else we feel left out. But then some of these things don't really sync with what you have recently shared with us. So then how a 25-year-old person who is, let's say, just beginning in his corporate journey can really be ambitious and yet make things work out? Well, here's the thing. When, when I introduce these ideas and concepts, people think they're in conflict to success. Whereas actually, I completely disagree. They are totally integral to sustainable success. In the short term, you could slog and work hard and blood, sweat and tears, you can make it to the top. You'll probably burn yourself out along the way. And if you don't, whatever you've experienced fighting tooth and nail in that way, there will be consequences, whether now or later in life where it could affect your health, it could affect your relationships. Because the, the reality is, it was Sheryl Sandberg that says, you know, there are many different areas of your life, relationships, physical health, mental health, career, uh, community, um, public service, etc. Now choose three, three of them. If you want to be really good, you can only choose three. You can't have them all, right? So when you put more emphasis on one area of your life, another area is going to suffer. So decide what are the most important areas for you and then build your life accordingly. But if we are working smarter, more effectively, here's the key thing. And I've got 20 years worth of data to back this up. So if anyone wants to know more about this, then get in touch. Find me and I'll share the data to prove this. Companies that work smarter, that support their people, that their people feel valued, that the well-being is an integral part on how they run their organizations, they are successful organizations. There is a direct correlation between the welfare and well-being of the workforce and bottom line profits, unequivocally. And I can back that up with 20 years worth of data. This is something that is taken seriously by some of the most successful companies on the planet. Having a clear mission, vision, and ensuring your staff are supported, that welfare and well-being is tied at the very core of what we do. And that's where if you are right now, you're 20, 25, and you're thinking, I need to get ahead, but I've got to make a choice. Do I value my health and well-being or do I value my career? I say no, value both, but do it in a sustainable way. It's very much the story of the hare and the tortoise, uh, which you may well have heard, right? So the tortoise races ahead, full pelt, but he gets exhausted, so he stops to have a rest. The tortoise is he's building slowly, building momentum. He's going, he's going, keeps moving, right? He wins the race. This is about slow and steady. Life is a marathon. So you may not necessarily get there as quickly, but we've also seen this in industry, the dot-com bubble, where all these companies grew massively. The whole industry grew massively. Then the industry was gone because it wasn't sustainable. So are you going to burn yourself out and find you've got nothing? Or do you want to take the time to do this in a way where long-term you can enjoy the benefits, but also have the life you deserve, have the life you dream of in the process? And if that includes family, friends, travel, adventure, that that's all tied into it. Love that. Really liked your take on that, Neil. So there's something which is coming to my mind. People in the armed forces go through the most stringent trainings in the world. They are trained to be physically and mentally fit. Yet their minds are tuned in such a way, their minds are trained in such a way that they can handle stress at any point in their lives. Now, what if people in the corporate world can be conditioned and their minds be trained on the similar lines? Maybe a few weeks of short training like Navy SEALs so that they can also become better in handling stress? 
So that, it's an interesting comment you've made. Navy SEALs, hell week, right? So they've got 130 hours maximum, getting two hours of sleep. I'm very familiar with this. We've been involved with uh, a number of different uh, activities around this. And, and the, the process is designed to break you. It's not how mentally strong you are. It's not how physically strong you are. It's your emotional resilience that they're testing. And it's being tested with physical uh, and mental challenges, right? Now, what's interesting, you can get through that. It develops a mental toughness that you can deal with battle scenarios. And there's very few scenarios that you won't be able to handle. But do you know the sad thing is? A lot of those guys, when they finish their service and they're walking around the grocery store or you know, they're at home with their families, they really struggle with that. So they may have developed the toughness to deal with a life-threatening scenario, but if they have the emotional resilience to deal with the kind of things that for many of us would just be like day-to-day activities. And that for me is where, yes, there's a lot of things that we can learn from the Navy SEALs, but I'm not suggesting you go off and do a Navy SEALs program unless you are wanting to put your life on the line every day. What I am encouraging you all to do is look at where is your life right now? And do you have the resilience required to navigate the challenges you face. Here's the thing. Our definition of stress is where demand exceeds an individual's resources or capacities to cope with that demand. If your demand is that you live and work in an environment where people are going to shoot you and try and blow you up, then look at how you can increase your capacity to cope with said demand. If your demand is you're dealing with pressures and deadlines and uh, you, you know a boss that's on your back and financial challenges, relationship challenges, whatever, increase your resilience to cope with those demands. And that's where it's really, really important. Like, prepare for the battle you're going to fight, not somebody else's battle. Now, often, this is what happens. Again, buy this book, read this book. It's going to give you all the answers. Well, does this book know your battles? Does this know what you're facing on a daily basis? So we can do, yes, read the book, enjoy it, but you then got to translate it into something that is meaningful and makes sense for you in your life. And this comes back to that point of self-awareness. Because once again, your question very much is, is looking for the answer outside of yourself. Well, if Navy SEALs can do it, maybe I should do what the Navy SEALs do. No, you need to do what Hamid needs to do. And the only way to answer that question is no, not what Hamid wants, what Hamid needs. What does Hamid need to flourish, to shine, to be the best he can be, to, to be able to express himself in the way that the world, no, the universe needs him to. So you got to own it and make your own story. Absolutely. That's what we, do you think Nelson Mandela, Mahatma Gandhi, Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, do you think they were looking for someone else's story? They made the story. Yeah. They are just human beings like me and you that were able to connect with their truth and write their own story. Now, many of us don't take the time to connect with the truth of who we are, of why we are here, the purpose that we are here to fulfill. When you find that, then it's, no, it's not even an effort to get out of bed. It's no problem to be working all night. It would be no hassle to, to struggle and strive for 130 hours in a week and only sleep for two hours to get through Hell Week. That's what the Navy SEALs have to achieve to get through Hell Week. Now, don't do a Navy SEALs Hell Week. Find out what your Hell Week is. I've had my own. Mine wasn't a Navy SEALs. I, I know it's one of the things we spoke about when we spoke previously, but mine was, was the Iron Man. That was my Hell Week. And that's what I, I, I coming to that. Having, 
to that in a short while. You know, you talked about Nelson Mandela, Mahatma Gandhi. Let's be clear about one thing. These are the same people who transformed the course of generations. Yet, they never went to a seven-day course to transform your life. Absolutely. They didn't buy a book. They didn't book a seminar. They didn't rush to the back of the room at the seminar to sign up for the next program. They wrote the program and they wrote it for themselves. So you write your own program, whether you, whatever you call it. You, you, you know, but this is where you are the person you've been waiting for. We are all the people we've been waiting for. We are the gurus and the saviors, each and every single one of us. So when we stop looking outside of ourselves is when we connect with the truth of who we are, we connect with our power, and that's when we will transform this world. I'm loving it. I'm totally loving this conversation with you today. You know, you're, you are someone who is very powerful, yet every word you speak comes straight from the heart. Blessed to have you here with us today, Neil. Thank you. Um, you know, you, you mentioned about marathons. You know, I know this is something every time I talk about this, it brings a smile on your face. So, because this is something that is very close to your heart also, Neil. So, what got you into running marathons in the first place, you know? And any biggest learnings you had from running marathons and even, you know, the Ironman triathlon, you know? So, Ahame, if you want me to do something, tell me I can't do it and I'll do it to prove you wrong. My journey with running started uh, maybe 20-odd years ago. Um, and I didn't start running because I like running. I actually hate running. You know, when I was at school, doing cross-country running was my idea of hell. And <laughs> I, one of my passions is football. I, love, I used to love playing football. I was never any good, but I used to play you know, once or twice a week. And I ended up having a very bad injury. I snapped my cruciate ligament, which is one of the worst footballing injuries you can have. It was potentially like, a, you know, something that would have affected the, the use of my knee for the rest of my life. So I had two surgeries to fix it. After the second surgery, the surgeon says, look, the surgery's been successful, but there are some things that we would recommend that you don't do again because the pressure it put on your knee could cause further injury. So he suggested I do not ski again, I don't play football again, and I forget about long-distance running. I'm a passionate skier. I've been skiing since I was, I was 10 years old. I've been playing football as long as I can remember. I was not about to give those up because the doctor told me that I couldn't do it. So I made a commitment to myself, I'm not giving these things up. Now, here's the thing. I had no interest or desire in running long distances until the moment a doctor, a surgeon said to me, Neil, don't run long distances. Then my head is like, I'm going to prove you wrong. I will show you I can run long distances just to prove that I can. <laughs> so being stubborn and pigheaded, I decided, now my first race, this very man I've never run in my life, the first race I committed to was a marathon, right? If I'm going to do something, I'm going to do it all out. So I signed up for London Marathon. I gave myself about a year to prepare. And I struggled um, with the training. It was hard. My friend, who's an ex-Royal Marine Special Forces, uh, oh, sorry, uh, retired, should I say. They're, they're never ex. They're always uh, Marines. Um, he trained me. And if you want to do something, get someone who's either in the military or used to be in the military to train you because you just don't say no to a, a Navy SEAL or a, a Royal Marine Special Forces. So he trained me. It was hard work and it was effort, but I did it. And my first experience was so bad that by the time I finished the race, everyone had gone home and they were sweeping up the streets. So it took me seven hours. So if you know anything about times for marathon, it was, it was crazy. Uh, you know, an elite athlete could have probably run it three times in that, or could have run it more than three times by the time I finished. But I did it. And I did it to prove the person that said that I couldn't do it wrong. 
Now, after I did it once, I was like, okay, I've done it. It was painful. It was challenging. I was struggling. I was in pain, but I did it. If I could do it badly, I can do it again better. So I ended up doing four marathons. And I also used that as a vehicle to then raise awareness of, uh, of things that I'm uh, uh, very uh, passionate about, like animal conservation. I raised a lot of money for tiger conservation, for snow leopards, uh, for um, some of the charities that are doing work, particularly in India, uh, to, to, to kind of really raise awareness around tiger conservation. So that became my, my additional passion for doing this work because I was able to do some good with it. So I did four marathons. I eventually got it to a, a half decent time. So I got it to around four hours, which is still no world record, but it's a, a time that I could be proud of. And then at that point, uh, I thought, well, you know, I've done the running thing. I like cycling and swimming. Let me see if, how good I am at a triathlon. Again, I wasn't naturally good at these things, but I, the mental toughness. And what, what, what really became powerful for me when I was running, after a while, it starts to become moving meditation. When you're running long distances several times a week, you lose yourself, right? You get lost in your thought. And I used to struggle with just sitting there quietly cross-legged meditating, but moving, it just meant that I was able to be connected with nature and just be at peace. And I found that when I moved to triathlon, the swimming, the cycling, the variety was just incredible. And I did a few Olympic distance triathlons. And then again, just like with most stories in my life, I, someone in the office said to me, uh, it, it was the, the very large guy in the office that does no exercise and eats kebabs and cakes every day, said to me, oh, you've done a triathlon. That's nothing. I bet you can't do an Ironman. I was like, okay, you're wrong. Let's make a bet. And I think he paid me like maybe 200 pounds or something. Never challenge Neil, yeah. <laughs> yeah, or if you want me to do something, challenge me and you know I'll do it. So you should, you know, if I come to your house, challenge me to clean your house or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> so, so he's like you can never do an iron man so i was like i'm gonna do it. i'm gonna prove you wrong the point i agreed to it i didn't really know what i was agreeing to i kind of knew the distances i knew that it's a long distance so an iron man in it sorry forgive me for for, for 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 being ignorant but in india do you use miles or kilometers well we, we use both like yeah. you use both okay so i'll use i'll use uh, uh kilometers because that's how i remember it so when I looked into it, I was like, oh my God, this is, this is quite a long experience. It's like four and a half kilometer swim, 180 kilometer bike ride, and then a 42 kilometer run at the end of it. So a full marathon. This is quite a big deal. And I was like, okay, I can do it. I can do it. Then I looked at how to train. I got a coach. The coach says, you need to train a year, for a year. And she oh. said, most weeks, you'll be training 25 to 30 hours a week. So it's like having a second full-time job. So I was going to work during the day. I was training before work and after work every day. Weekends, literally on the Sunday, I would do a seven or eight-hour bike ride. And it was insane. But what was interesting, when I was running marathons, I learned a few things about myself. It starts with physical strength. So when you're doing a marathon, the first thing you draw on is your physical strength. After a while, your physical strength drains, particularly when you get to a certain distance in the race. And then it comes to mental toughness. Your body's exhausted and you kick into the mental resolve, the grit. I'm going to get this done. Now, what will happen, even at points, your mental toughness will fail. But the crowd is there. They're cheering you on. I had my name on my shirt. So they're like, Neil, come on, come on. There's strangers cheering me on. And then you go to that place of emotional drive. You know, your heart is carrying you where you're being lifted by the people around you. So I'd already experienced those three stages of an endurance event, the, the physical, mental, and emotional. But when you get to a ridiculous race, now you've got to bear in mind, 
you know, an elite athlete can take between eight and 10 hours to do an Ironman. An average person takes between 12 and 15 hours. It took me 15 hours. Can you imagine racing full out for 15 hours? No break, no stop, no sitting down. You are just racing for 15 hours. You are eating while you're moving. You're drinking that's, while that's you're moving. Insane. That's insane. And what I found, Harmi, is when I got to a certain point in the race, particularly when I got to the marathon, which is the last five hours of my race, physically exhausted, the mind is gone. I was like a zombie. There was nothing there. If you were speaking to me, you'd get nothing because I wasn't capable of talking to you. The mind had disengaged. The heart was spent. There was nothing left. And I accessed a deeper aspect to myself. I found myself outside of myself. So I'm there watching Neil doing this race. And I realized that beyond physical, beyond mental, beyond emotional, is spiritual, where you are able to connect to something far greater, a far more superior power. And we all have the ability to connect with that, but we have to go within. And I had to push my physical boundaries. And for me, racing and training is very much a spiritual experience. It's my way of being able to connect with the universe. And I had one of my most profound spiritual experiences. The moment I crossed the finish line, I collapsed, I'm crying, I'm emotional. And I felt, I, I genuinely, I felt like I can only describe it as the presence of God, where I felt like at one with the universe. If I died in that moment, I would have gone in peace. I didn't, wow. thankfully, but it was just this moment of unity where through physical expression, through physical, uh, you know, pushing my boundaries, I was able to discover aspects of myself that are hidden for many of us. People that climb mountains, people that push their boundaries, people that jump out of planes with parachutes or sometimes with no parachutes, with just those squirrel suits. Yeah. They all understand this because the further they push their boundaries, the closer you are to death, the more alive you actually are. Wow. That's that's amazing. Um, that the way you described your journey, you know, I really felt like as if I'm standing at the finish line and watching you walk the last one mile. You know, I didn't. Well, that's the thing, Harmi. Can you imagine? Like there were points I couldn't even stand or walk. When I stopped to pee, I fell over. The, I don't remember this, but the people that were there were, were recorded it. My my brother, my father were there to watch me. They said you sprinted across the finish line. Like a crazy person. I was like, I don't know how I was even able to do that. Um, but it's not like I crawled because I, I sprinted like Usain Bolt after racing for for 14 hours, 14 hours and, you know, 59 minutes. I've then sprinted across the finish line. This is what we're capable of. What are you depriving yourself of? What power are you denying yourself of? Because you're not willing to go through the pain and discomfort to access it. People that go through hell week, people that push their boundaries, people that do a Vipassana meditation, people that, that, that you know, give up their life in service, people that go off and do these extreme sporting events, they all understand that they are uncovering layers of themselves that is deprived and denied to many of us because we're just not willing to go through the pain and discomfort to get there. Neil, I'm really glad that you completed the Iron Man. But something which also really caught my attention was when you said, God forbid, even if I had died competing in this marathon, I would have still gone in peace. Maybe you said that because you handed yourself to the universe that day. You handed yourself to a bigger power to drive you. 
And Hamid, that's a really powerful point you've raised there. If what you're doing every day leaves you feeling exhausted, it's because it's coming from you. I spend a lot of my time speaking on stage, uh, conferences. There'll be thousands of people in the audience. Sometimes, you know, I do a lot of radio and television work. You know, if I'm, I'm on the BBC, there could be like six, seven million people that are watching. The moment where I am able to access the most power, it's not nil. I'm just a channel. I'm allowing the universe to work through me. The key piece of advice I give to everyone listening today, get out of the way of yourself because you are the biggest barrier between yourself and your ultimate destiny, your power, your liberation, your freedom, your success. And when we are able to understand that, 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 that we are conductors, it's kind of like this, this a cable it conducts electricity or energy. If this cable is frayed or knotted up and it's, the power is struggling to get through it and the cable is really going to struggle. We've got a clear channel. We've got a clear cable. The power can flow freely. And we need to look after our, our, you know, our, our energy conduits physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. So physically, looking after your body, eating well, resting well, exercising, mentally, what you think, you know, making sure you're exposing yourself to things that, that lift you and inspire you. Emotionally, what you feel, you know, the emotional interactions, but also spiritually. And again, when I say spiritually, it's your connection to something beyond yourself. And I'm not here to tell you what that is. It could be for you, you're in the stadiums of a footballer or a cricket ground, and there's 60,000 people singing the same song at the same time, but you're in that moment, you are connected. We're all singing that one song at the same time. That for me is spiritual communion. How is that any different? For me, a football stadium could be a place of worship, right? Or it could be being in nature. Nature could be your temple. It could be in a forest or in a park. It could be with silent meditation. It could be serving your community. Whatever it is, find that way that you can connect to something beyond yourself. And if you've got those four components in place, that's where the transformation begins. That's fantastic. So, Neil, you have talked about having our physical, mental, and spiritual health in check. And you're someone who actually walks the talk. However, a lot of people are so busy in their lifestyle, in their hectic lives, that they end up neglecting their physical, mental, and spiritual health. So maybe can you recommend some instant lifestyle changes to reduce or counter stress in our lives? Well, here's the thing. We often think it requires time, effort, and energy. It's... That's not the key thing. It's about habit, little and often. Even if you could take a 10-minute walk every day, even if you could spend a few minutes every evening meditating or writing a gratitude journal, just reflecting on the things that are important to you or just carrying a journal with you and writing things that are powerful, even if it's um, taking the time for emotional connection with the people that you love, um, even even things like hugs and cuddles and things like that. We we live in a world where we we don't get enough of those, and that 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 could be a really powerful thing. It could be volunteering, giving ourselves in service could could be something. And again, it doesn't need to be a lot of time effort. It doesn't necessarily need to be money. The most valuable gift is you can give is your time. Go and visit an, an elderly relative or neighbour. Have a cup of tea with them and ask them how they're doing. You know, all of these things are great ways of being able to lift our own spirits. But simple things like, you know, making sure that we sleep well, that we get a good night's sleep, that we are eating well. Um, but the most simple, the most powerful thing that we can do 
is also the first thing you do when you arrive on this planet. It's the last thing you do before you leave this planet. It's something you're doing in any given moment of your time, even while you're sleeping, which is what? Breathing. Absolutely. It sounds ridiculous, but the quickest and easiest way to change your state and to create balance and harmony is just to stop and just focus on your breath. So I'm going to give you a mantra. Respiration of observation. Sorry. Start again. I said it the wrong way around. <laughs> observation of respiration. Okay. It's been a long day. So observation of respiration. So I'm going to encourage all of us to watch our breath. This is a mindfulness practice. I don't want you to change your breath. I don't want you to do anything, not breathing deeply, not chanting on. Just observe. Just to go inside and let's just practice together for a moment. All right? So, Hami, I invite you to close your eyes. Yeah. yeah. And just breathe. Just take a few slow, deep breaths. Nice, easy, relaxing breaths. And just be aware. Just tune in. Where are you experiencing that in your body? Is it in your chest? Is it in your belly? Do you have deep breaths? Do you have shallow breaths? Are you breathing slow? Are you breathing fast? And now just start just being aware of scanning your body. What are you aware of? Are you... You've got tension, are you feeling relaxed, are you feeling calm? Now, here's the thing. Most of our stress, I would say 90, 95% of the stress we experience happens when? In the future or in the past? Because we're stressed about things that haven't happened yet or we're stressing or worried or upset about things that have already happened, right? Absolutely. We don't have time machines. So you can't go back to change things that have already happened. We can't go to the future to change what the future looks like. The present is a gift. Being in this moment is one of the most powerful things we can do. And the best way to bring ourselves into this moment is observe the reality of this moment as it is mm. with no judgment. When I say no judgment, we're not trying to change it. We're not trying to do things in a particular way. We are just observing. And one of the most powerful things that we can do is bring ourselves back in this moment because we live in a world that is like, listen to me, watch this, consume this, do this, buy this. And the world is trying to yeah. distract you so just go in tune in be present and once you've got comfortable doing that just observing your breath then when you're moving walking running exercising whatever you are more comfortable and it's a lot easier for you to go in and just be able to observe the reality of this moment as it is being present is a gift as rightly said by you neil when i was doing this exercise with you i could feel the breath i was taking in I could feel it within my entire body. And most importantly, I felt like I occupy a space in this universe. I exist. I am present. And one thing I realized is that one should be grateful for being able to breathe in the moment. Hami, you exist. You are present in the universe. And you might be grateful. But I can assure you, I can promise you, the universe is grateful, grateful for your existence too. And when you appreciate there's a reciprocal arrangement, that the more present you are, the more of your gifts you give to the universe, the more the universe is in gratitude to you for doing so. And most of us don't appreciate that. We look at ourselves as, as pointless, worthless, we're just another person, I'm just trying to get through life and make ends meet and put food on the table. Every single one of us is here for a reason. And I invite every one of you, it doesn't matter where you are, what your economic status, your age, your you know, physical capacity, mental capacity, we are all here for a reason. And the universe is grateful for your reason. I encourage you, I implore you, 
So spend some time exploring that. Why are you here? What is your reason for being? Talking to you right now is like probably uh, going through hundreds of books and years of experience. So you have saved me that today. It's great talking to you. But Hami, like, like, can I just add, please, don't believe anything I say, right? And it's not because I don't trust what I'm saying. It's only true if it's true for you. Blind faith is dangerous. And, you know, I'm going to say, don't even believe me. I, you know, take on board what I'm saying, but verify it for yourself. Employ critical thinking. I'm not an expert. I'm not a guru. I'm just a guy that's seen a lot of things. I'm a witness. I'm only sharing with you what I've learned along the way. And that is one of the things that I think many of us are looking for that guru, that, that, the, the hero that's going to give us the answer. I'm not that person. I'm a guru slayer. If someone comes across me and they say they're a guru, I'll show you how they're not. So you know that's that's a, a really important point. I'm here to help you to find your true guru, because your true guru lives inside you, Harmi. Absolutely, he was there the day you were born. No, you you are you are an amazing channel. Uh, what the universe has given to us as a gift, I will surely pick up the right things which you have said and fine-tune it with the story of our lives, so that we can have the best results to become the better version in our lives. So, Neil, this this takes me to the last segment of the show, which I call the one minute round. And <laughs> you have a minute each to answer a few questions which I have for you. Here's the first one. What success means to you? Success means for me, connecting with my true sovereign cosmic power. I measure success by how many people I've helped, by how many lives I've shifted, by how much of a difference I've made in this world. I want people to remember, not me, not Neil, but the difference I've made in the world, that, that I have left a legacy behind that has meant that the world and the universe has benefited from my existence. There is no amount of economic status or wealth, physical wealth that can measure that. It's, it, you know, I'm here in service. I'm, I'm here to serve the universe. And the greater I can serve the universe and the more of a profound impact that I can have on people, the planet, animals, etc. That for me is when I know that I am achieving success. I've got a hell of a lot of work still to do before I get anywhere near the point where I'll be happy with success. One book which you recommend everyone should read? Oh, that's a hard question, Hami. Um, <laughs> it's like saying, what's your favorite food? What time of day? What's the purpose I'm eating? Am I hungry? Okay. The one book I'm going to recommend to everyone, it's a very left field book. We talked about a few things like, uh, Navy SEALs and, uh, you know, kind of connecting with spirituality. The book I'm going to recommend, it's not one that many people have heard of. It's called Stealing Fire. Okay? Mm -hmm. Now, Stealing Fire is uh, it's about the, the humanity's use of non-ordinary states of consciousness that have led to quantum shifts in our civilizations and how that has been done through everything from meditation to psychedelics to all kinds of different things, how uh, group flow type experiences have really allowed us to shift forward and how we've had this quantum shift in technology as a direct result of, of, of humans accessing non-ordinary states of consciousness. And for me, this is also tying in with this message of, of connecting with the internal wisdom. The wisdom is in here. We just don't know how to access it. But this secret has been around for thousands of years. It's just been hidden from us. It's now being shared a little bit more openly. So if you want to know more, pick up that book, Stealing Fire. What's happiness for Neil? Contentment, peace within. Happiness for me is where I'm able to deliver something 
which I know has had a positive impact on the people around me. Whether that's, you know, having my friends over for dinner, whether that's coming off stage and I've spoken to a thousand people, whether that's how I feel right now after finishing talking to you, I feel alive. Happiness for me is feeling truly alive. That could also be swimming in the ocean. It could be climbing a mountain. It could be skiing down on a pristine bluebird powder day, skiing down a mountain. It could be hugging a loved one. It could be, it's contentment. Happiness for me is where I'm in this moment. I'm not waiting for something to happen. I'm not needing anything. In this moment, I have everything. Also, that moment is if this was the last moment in my life, I would be at peace. That's what happiness is. The last line of your autobiography would read, and then he walked into a lamppost. And let me explain why, right? Yeah. The, you know, I can have a conversation like, like this with you, and I do this all the time, and people kind of put me on this pedestal. Like, oh, my God, like, he's Neil, he's written these books, he does all this work, he's really well known. I'm just a normal guy like everyone else, and I do stupid things, and I fall down the stairs, and I walk into lampposts, and the last line of my autobiography would be to reaffirm the fact he's just another person. He's not any different to any of us. In the same way, you know, Mahatma Gandhi, Nelson Mandela, Martin Luther King, they all had to go to the toilet to take a shit. They're just human, just like us. They had to eat. They got colds. They, you know, and I'm the same. So if you ask me what's the last line in my book, it would be something stupid like, and then he fell down the stairs or he walked into a lamppost. Because no matter what I've done, I'm just human. I'm just another person. Amazing. So Neil, here's one last thing I want to ask you. Consider yourself to be standing in a room. You are the only person in that room. The lights are dim. And someone walks into that room. This is a 20-year-old Neil. He comes and stands in front of you. He looks into your eyes and very innocently asks you, what's the best way to live life? So what would be your answer to this younger version of me? I'm going to say something very controversial. I would say to him, do exactly what you're doing because it's all perfect. It's not going to be easy. There's going to be times you're going to screw up royally and get it wrong. And it's, there'll be tragedy and there'll be pain, but you've got to go through it. So don't change anything. Don't change a single thing. Just keep doing what you're doing. Because if I went back and changed even one thing, Army, even one thing, I wouldn't be the man I am today. I had to have every single one of those experiences. So if I was fortunate enough to go back, I'd be like, how you doing, dude? Nice to meet you. You've got a ride coming up. Enjoy the ride and, and relish every moment but I'm not going to give you any clues and I'm not going to encourage you to change anything because otherwise you're going to miss the beauty of this incredible journey that you're about to start on. Neil, I want to say this to you. It's been an absolute treat and pleasure listening to the Neil, listening to the Neil who has evolved in the process of the journey of his life so far. And you have dropped tons of knowledge, tons of insights and wisdom, which all of us can pick and, and apply to their lives and make it the best life ever. It's an honor to have you here today, Neil. I mean, thank you. Thank you so much for doing this. Oh, you're most welcome. It's been so much fun. I really enjoyed it.
Thank you, Ami. If anyone would like to find out more about the stuff we do, um, we're very easy to find. Um, uh, for the stress management site, it's www.stress.org.uk. If you're interested in stuff around wellbeing at work, it's www.wellbeing.work. I'm also on Twitter at Neil Karma, as in K-A-R-M-A. So yeah, I'd love to, to, to hear from your, your, your listeners. Um, and if they want to find out more, there's lots of ways that they can do that. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Hustle with Harmeet. If you're listening to us on iTunes, please don't forget to leave a five-star review on the Apple Podcast. If you're listening to us on Spotify, do click on the follow button. If there's any feedback from this episode, you may write to us on harmeetspeaks at gmail.com. Also, do check out our Instagram handle at the rate hustle with Harmeet for all the latest updates. I'll catch up with you all next week. And yes... Remember, don't give up on your life and dreams. Keep working hard, keep moving ahead and keep hustling. Because one day, your success will make all the noise. This is your host, Harmeet Singh, signing off. Goodbye.